Good morning. Thank you for inviting me here this morning to share my story. Now, I hope you enjoyed the video as much as we did making it. I especially appreciate the powerful lyrics in the song, Go Light Our World. Ruth and I are blessed with nine grandsons, with the oldest being seven years old. We love them and support them unconditionally, but we believe we can and are called to do a lot more. Now, some have called me a cycling philanthropist, but others have simply called me crazy. You can decide for yourself. I, however, believe that God has called me to be an ambassador for children that have been abandoned by everyone except God. I have chosen ultramarathon cycling as my platform to do that. Now, my hope for this morning is to help inspire you to be everything God wants you to be, no matter what your age is. It might mean that God will, at some point, ask you to actually leave your comfort zone and venture into areas you never envisioned yourself in. He asked that of me. I already mentioned I'm an ultramarathon cyclist, but that was not always the case. In fact, about 23 years ago, I went for my first bike ride. I was going to go 40 kilometers. After 30 kilometers, I called my wife, Ruth, to please come and pick me up. I couldn't make it home. That was the beginning of something that would eventually alter the course of our life. I soon participated in ultramarathon races all over North America. Ultramarathon events are single-stage events that last one, two, three days. You're always on the clock, meaning everything you need to do is part of your race time. You're also not allowed to draft, having to face the elements head-on. I soon realized that ultramarathon cycling would be a great platform to share my passion to make a difference to others. And in my case, that would be orphan or abandoned kids rescued by Muli Children's Family, a street children rescue mission in Kenya, Africa. And I will say a little bit more about that later. But about 13 years ago, I prayed a prayer that went something like this. God, you have created me to be pretty determined in whatever sport I'm participating in. Since long-distance cycling is something I've gotten pretty good at in my advanced age, I want to use it to make a difference in the world and to honor and glorify you. I will do my best, and you do the rest. God has not let me down. I also promise God that if my cycling endeavors would create a platform for me to share my faith, I would do, do so. That is why I'm standing here this morning. Now, each year, I build my, my fundraising platform around one big cycling event. Today, I will share a few stories from my four cross-Canada rides. In 2011, I made my first Guinness World Record attempt across Canada. A few weeks before the attempt, I went to see my doctor at the Pan Am Clinics for a final checkup. I should mention that I had a severe case of osteoarthritis in my left hip. Cycling had delayed the need for hip replacement surgery, which I finally had five and a half years ago. But at the time of my checkup, my left leg was one and a half inches shorter, and my left thigh was four, two inches smaller in diameter. After the examination, my doctor made this comment. You have the right thigh of a 35-year-old elite cyclist. I liked hearing that, especially when I, when I was four, 54. You have the left thigh of a 14-year-old girl. I did not like hearing that. 
But you also have heart and determination that is unprecedented. The Vancouver to Halifax Guinness World Record is yours for the taking. Go for it. I did not know if he paid me a compliment or if this was his way of telling me I was simply nuts to even try this. He, however, was not aware of one other thing I had. I had hundreds of people praying for success. We had three goals. Number one, we wanted to create awareness and raise funds for Muli Children's Family. Secondly, we wanted to use the exposure that comes from attempting to break the Guinness World Record to its maximum. This included being Christians and promoting a Christian organization in mainstream media. It was an ideal platform to live out my vision, which is to be an effective voice for thousands of children rescued by Muli Children's Family and for thousands still waiting for someone to care. You see, I refuse to accept the common notion that the little bit I can do does not matter in the big picture. Third, if I was fortunate enough to set a new record and become the fastest person to cycle across Canada, that would simply be a bonus. Now, most of these big events require a support crew whose job is to look after everything so I can stay on the bike and paddle. Ruth has been my crew chief, and most of my events where a support vehicle is needed. She has the right combination of encouragement, and yet she can also display some much-needed much tough love. There are times where I simply have had enough, and I do not want to continue. I can no longer see the value in what I'm doing. At that time, I get a three-point sermon. Point one, Arvid, you made a decision to do this. Point two, no one held a gun to your head. You decided to do this of your own free will. Point three, so stop your whining and get back on a bike and ride. And I usually do. I would not be able to do what I do without the incredibly supportive family, and especially my wife, Ruth. She has the hard job. I just ride my bike. I will just highlight a couple of things that happened on the road. I set a blistering pace. I was on a bike 20 and a half hours a day, sleeping only 120 minutes a night. For the first four days, I averaged 545 kilometers per day, about 90 kilometers more per day that was needed to break the existing record. I also knew that Halifax was a long way off and things would change. And boy, did they ever. By the time I reached the Saskatchewan Manitoba border, I began to retain fluid in my legs. As, my, as the swelling increased, cycling became more difficult. It felt like I was pedaling underwater. I had also developed a good-sized boil to sit on, but at least this pain was helpful in getting my mind of all the other challenges I was dealing with. The lack of sleep began to take its toll around the Great Lakes, and I began seeing things that were not real. But a defining moment was on a way to Marathon, Ontario. I recall stopping at 3 a.m., engulfed in complete fog. Honestly, I did not think I could go on. As I was leaning on my bike, I noticed a ravine just a few feet away. It came to me that if I just nudged my bike even just a little bit, my bike would topple down and I would have a legitimate reason to quit. But just at that time, the support went pulled up alongside of me and I saw a perfectly good spare bike mounted on top of it. It would have been very difficult to throw that one overboard by accident as well. But it was here that my prayer changed from God, help me to do this, to God, I cannot do this. 
but I will continue to do my best. I surrender the outcome of this event to you. It was a freeing moment and a lesson I will never forget. By day six, by day seven, it was impossible to comprehend that I could do this for another six or seven days. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. Everything around me screamed, it's okay to quit. You've done your best. I really could no longer see the value in what I was doing. All my good intentions seemed in- irrelevant at this time. This so-called once-in-a-lifetime experience need not be my experience. I tried to recall my goal, my vision, my reason for being here in the first place, Even my genuine desire to have people share my passion to help a child in need seemed insignificant at at this time. These kids, after all, are not my responsibility. Let someone else look after them. This is too hard. I can't do this. I was just over, halfway there. Now, these events have a way of becoming very real. Within a very defined time frame, I experienced physically mentally and emotionally, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. In order to have success, I must be willing to accept adversity as teacher and even as friend. Now here's a brief video from one of those roadside moments. If you could play that. finish this regardless uh, because I, I committed 86,040 kilometers to this platform. <coughs> and these kids have <coughs> experienced nothing but disappointments from adults in their life due to various circumstances and not nearly all of them at the fault of the adults either. I don't think we are in a position where a little <coughs> inconvenience, a little pain, a little bit of fluid, a little bit of health challenges allow us to take that option out and simply say, you know what, this is too hard, I'm just quitting because I don't, it's not my responsibility. I have no intentions of that. And so, <coughs> so to me, I, I intend to struggle on um, one day, two days, three days, basically whatever it takes to, to get to Halifax because that's the platform that I committed to this cause. Now the eventual outcome was in God's hand, but the responsibility to continue to do my best was in my hand. Now, I had flown Charles Mooley to Canada to join me, to join my support crew from Ottawa to Halifax. He was supposed to be presented with a $50,000 check in Halifax, which had been promised if I would set a new record. This was on top of the money I was already raising with the event. Yet all I could think of was reasons why it was okay to quit. 
As the fluid in my legs continued to get worse, I watched my lead over the existing record shrink from 22 hours to 12 hours. At around 1 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon in Meadow, Ontario, I took a drastic step. I simply stopped. We took a motel, and I crawled into bed for 17 hours. I also gave up in setting a new record. But over the years, ultramarathon cycling has taught me some valuable life lessons, one being to never make a final decision when circumstances are at their worst. At that point, I'm in a position of weakness with a short-term view, and I must first reestablish a position of strength with a much more rational perspective before making a decision I cannot reverse. By 6 a.m. on Monday morning, I was riding again. Now, when I met Charles Mooley just west of Ottawa, it was an emotional greeting. He had been aware of my struggles. When we met, he told me that as I was resting in a motel and struggling with the desire to quit, his wife Esther had organized the older children in Kenya for a day of prayer and fasting for me. They canceled school, and 600 young people prayed for me. Then Mr. Mooley went on to pray. I, I assumed he would pray for cur- safety, courage, strength, etc. But he didn't. In fact, in his prayer, he did not ask God for anything. He thanked God for the victory we would have. He thanked God that I would become the fastest person to cycle across Canada and become a Guinness World Record holder. We were, seven, we were 1,700 kilometers away from Halifax. We were now five hours behind the existing record pace. I was still going through serious physical and emotional struggles, wanting to quit, never mind setting a record. I was actually kind of annoyed and definitely confused about what this all meant. How dare he thank God for victory when I was the one on a bike? But now as I'm processing this experience, I'm reminded of how Mr. Mooley answered his question. Have have you ever run out of food, I asked him, to feed all your children, I asked him. He said, only in the evening. During the night, there was an anonymous check deposited in our account. The next day, we bought food to feed our children. Now when I think about this and other interactions I've had with Charles Mooley, It is very evident to me that he has a tremendous faith, but he does one more thing. He puts actions together with his faith. He does not only pray and ask God for things, he does his part first. I'm reminded of the words from the book of James where the writer says, If any one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Yes, what good is it indeed? And how often do we pray for people's needs when we are the answer? The 10,000 MCF beneficiaries are thankful that Mr. Mooley is doing a lot more than uttering warm wishes for them. Now it turns out that Charles Mooley was right. The final 40 hours I pushed straight through, only stopping for a couple of five-minute naps on the side of the road. We managed to get to Halifax and beat the old record by two hours and 53 minutes. But after setting the record in 2011, I tried to break my Guinness World Record across Canada again in 2012. 
With 700 kilometers left, I was five hours ahead of record pace, only to suffer a complete mental and emotional collapse. A number of circumstances had led up to that point. First in Saskatchewan, with no one to blame but myself, I cycled in the wrong direction for two hours. Then in Ontario, at 4 a.m., I was the first person on the scene of an accident where a driver was trapped in a flipped pickup truck. Finally, in New Brunswick, we came up to the scene of another accident, which shut the Trans-Canada down both ways for four hours. When the all-clear was given at 12 midnight, the mental strain of what I had gone through and carried to that point was simply too much. I had had enough. I refused to continue. I took a motel. Now, without me knowing anything about it, three days before this, our kids back home had sensed the fragile emotional state I was in. They arranged a few days off for work for Ruth. They bought her a ticket and sent her to surprise me. But when she got there, I had quit. We spent the night talking, me saying, I'm done, I can't go on. Ruth saying, you can't break the record anymore, but you can finish what you started and ride to Halifax. Then our son Paul called from Winnipeg. He wanted to Skype with me. I did not want to talk to him. Finally, I relented. I gave him the same list I had given Ruth of why this ride was over. Among other things, I said, Paul, I'm done. I can't go on. And besides, I have cycled from Vancouver to Halifax two times already. I'm the existing Guinness World Record holder. I don't need to do this. After letting me defend my reasons to quit, he finally said, Dad, what were your three reasons for doing this ride in the first place? I did not want to answer him. And then he added, and please list them in order of priority. Finally, I said, we wanted to create awareness and raise funds for destitute kids rescued by Muli Children's family. Secondly, we wanted to remain true to our faith in all circumstances. Third, to break my existing Guinness World Record. And then he said, Dad, by now breaking, the record is no longer possible. But what stops you from accomplishing your first and second priority? I still did not agree to anything when I went to sleep at 4 a.m. At 7 a.m., I woke up to the sun shining through the window and the birds singing. The darkness of the previous night had been lifted. I got on my bike and I rode the last 700 kilometers to Halifax. I did not set a new record. But that night, God used my wife Ruth, our son Paul, to make me realize what incredible things can happen in cycling, in life, in making a difference in the world when quitting is not an option. It was a difficult and a humbling experience, but a lesson I will never forget. Now, this past July, I thought I would make one more attempt to break the cross-Canada record. I said in 2011, some of us are slow learners. Once again, we experience God in a very significant way. Be strong and courageous. 
Never have four words been more important in the outcome of an event than these four words spoken to me by my wife Ruth at the time of my departure by van for BC on June 28th. Ruth and I, Ruth and I had said our goodbyes when she came back and said, Arvid, be strong and courageous. My first thought was, do you think I've been a wimp till now? I soon realized that God had placed those words on her heart for a reason. Three and a half hours into the Guinness World Record attempt, I crashed at a speed of 64 kilometers per hour. For a number of reasons, I was going too fast into an 11% descent grade with a very sharp left-hand turn. In an instant, I found myself with only two choices. Either hit the concrete barrier with a steep embankment behind it, or laid a bike flat on the pavement and suffered the consequences of contact with the pavement. I chose the latter. Now, to make matters even more serious was the fact that my crash occurred in a blind spot of this curve. It is only by the protection of God's angels that the vehicles coming around this blind corner managed to stop in time. After my crew did an admirable job of patching me up and stopping the bleeding, we waited for an ambulance to take me to the hospital. I sat there. As I sat there in pain, Pain came to life from each of the different wounds. I stopped counting after about 12 separate wounds, with the most painful being my left hand, something I would need continuously if I were to continue. Then out of seemingly nowhere, a thought came to me. Now I have at least a dozen legitimate reasons to quit, to call this Guinness World Record attempt off. After this crash and the mess I'm in, no one will blame me for abandoning my ride. Mentally and emotionally, I was vulnerable. Satan knew it too. He swooped in to discourage me and validated my thoughts that it was not doable to continue in this state. Over the years, we have had more and more success being as we've had more and more success being ambassadors for children rescued by MCF. I have also experienced more and more spiritual opposition. I'm very human, and opposition often comes in the form of personal discouragement and doubts. Then these words came back to me. Be strong and courageous. Wow. That hit me hard. In light of what just happened, what does that mean? I was not able to speak with Ruth till after my four-hour stay in emergency hospital. And an, an Asian nurse went from one wound to the next. And as she cleaned out the asphalt and gravel from each wound, she would say, You poor dear man. Halfway through the process, I was called to have x-rays when the technician was not looking. I slipped into the bathroom to look into the mirror for the first time. That is when I said, You poor dear man. But the doctors gave me the all clear. No sign of a concussion. No broken bones, ribs. No damage to my lungs. It was up to me. It was up to us. Would I be able to ride day and night for 6,000 kilometers for two weeks with all the injuries? Was I strong enough or even courageous enough to try after the crash? We waited till the next morning to decide my wounds were external only, but my strength and courage 
had to come from within. Together, Ruth and I decided that if my crew was willing, I would restart at Vancouver City Hall again 24 hours after the crash. Now, on our way to City Hall, Ruth called from Winnipeg to wish me well. She had watched an Andy Stanley sermon that morning. The takeaway point God placed on her heart to share with me was this. Uncertainty is inevitable. However, being fearful is optional. As I approached the place where I crashed just three hours ago, I had total peace. We were on our way to Halifax to publicly share my passion to help restore hope to formerly destitute kids. It was not an easy ride. These events never are. As I left Quebec City around 2 a.m. after two hours sleep in a Tim Hortons parking lot, the wind had again turned against me. The road was brutal with diagonal cracks every few feet. Even even if my situation was self-inflicted, I got a tiny glimpse into what it must feel like for a destitute child with no longer even understands the meaning of hope. At that moment, I too had no hope of reaching Halifax. Be strong and courageous. So I stayed on my bike. Now by the grace of God, 15 days and one hour later, after we left Vancouver City Hall a second time, we reached Halifax. Not in Guinness World Record time, but in God's time. I could not ask for anything more. God continues to bless my cycling platform in ways we could not even have imagined 11 years ago, our first event on behalf of MCF. Now, I have often been asked how we got involved with MCF, that's Muli Children's Family. Why them? Our involvement with MCF began in 2005. I had wanted to use my love for cycling to make a difference to disadvantaged kids. My idea was to buy a tandem bike, cut off the rear pedals, and transport children across Canada, creating a platform for them to tell their story. My idea was rejected by the first organization I pitched it to. I remained convinced, however, that it was a good and doable concept, but I could not find an organization to partner with. Until one Sunday morning in Sunday school, a friend leaned over and told me that his son was going to Kenya to teach physics at martial arts in a street children rescue mission called Muli Children's Family. I had never even heard of them. Yet I felt like God hit me on the head with a two-by-four and said, I closed one door, but I opened another. I went home that day. I typed up a one-page proposal with my far-fetched idea, addressed it to this man called Charles Muli. I sent it along with my friend's son, Paul. A few weeks later, a reply came back, stating that they were going to send three teenagers, two boys and a girl, and Dondo, a biological muli, as a chaperone to Canada. They entrusted their kids to a complete stranger because they too sensed that this was the beginning of a lifelong partnership. And so the event known as Spoke 2005, the Canadian Safari, became reality. In White Rock, B.C., on May 28, 2005, I filled this water bottle half full with water from the Pacific Ocean. It represented mine, our family's commitment to do what we can, ha- can to help. 
Now, 30 days later, and 30 days and 7,000 kilometers later, I filled the rest of the bottle with water from the Atlantic Ocean. This water represented Charles Mooley, his biological family, and the staff at Mooley Children's Family. As the waters from the two oceans mixed, a lifetime partnership was formed to restore hope to thousands of destitute kids. This was the first and only time that somebody transported another person across Canada. It did exactly what we had hoped it would do. We were covered in newspapers, radio, and TV. In total, we did 72 media interviews in 30 days. Former orphaned or abandoned children had an opportunity to tell Canadians on national television of what life was like before they had been rescued and what life was like now that they were living in the loving family environment of Muli Children's Family. Spoke 2005 to Canadian Safari was the beginning of spreading awareness and support for MCF right across Canada. Now, I carried a picture of a little girl named Charity with me the whole time. Charity was born to a teenage mom. Poverty and family problems eventually led this teenage mom to a state of desperation. Someone found she, she, she left her infant to die on a rock by the river. Someone found Charity in an emaciated state. On another occasion, the young mother tried to strangle her infant daughter. Charity was rescued and placed in the care of MCF. She was part of my mission statement, representing thousands of abandoned children. It was just a picture, like many others we see in the media. The kind we may go away by changing the channel or flipping the page in a newspaper or magazine. But in November of 2006, Ruth and I visited MCF. At one of the evening programs, the little children were wandering around. I held out my arms. And a little girl jumped on my lap. She sat and played with my fingers. It happened to be charity. I had carried her picture for 30 days and 7,000 kilometers. Now she sat on my lap for 30 minutes. It was at that time a picture of a child in need became a real person. God removed the wall of indifference with which I had surrounded myself. I'm so thankful that God opened my eyes to see past the picture. I discovered a compassionate love for children I will never even meet. Now we were introduced to many children at MCF. One of those kids was a girl named Lillian. We thought nothing of it at first. She was just another girl. But as we walked with her, we were overcome with emotion when we understood that this was the little girl that was eight years old and weighed 14 pounds at the time of her rescue. Now she was a healthy teenager. God used Muli Children's family to perform a miracle. As we got to know a little more about Lillian, our personal wants and desires, the very things that previously stopped us from doing so much more for destitute kids seemed trivial and even embarrassing. Now, in 2005, they had 832 children that called Charles and Esther Mooley, mom and dad. Today, that number has grown to over 3,000. In MCF's 25-year history, another 10,000 have graduated, and many have become pillars in the community, working as teachers, managers, 
entrepreneurs, nurses, and even medical doctors. About 90% of the kids rescued by MCF accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. When they graduated and leave MCF, they spread the message of hope modeled each day by the staff. We sat in that room that evening and participated in evening devotions, surrounded by about 250 kids. The children were full of laughter, joy, and hope. But just a few years ago, they had been left to die on a rock. They roamed the streets to dig through garbage. They had been outcasts of society. Now they were singing and praising God. Their life changed because of one man's obedience to God's call. Charles Mooley chose to value a child's life more than the personal accumulation of material wealth. It became obvious to us that this was now our extended family. Now, depending on economic circumstances worldwide, MCF has reached levels of 45% self-sufficiency, raising a family of over 2,000 kids. This is accomplished with agricultural and entrepreneurial business, commercial business initiatives, also providing jobs for hundreds of widows in the nearby communities. Now, 2006 was also the year that I resigned from a great career of 31 years with Palace of Furniture. Since I had been in a senior management position, the DeFair family saw fit to support my new calling with a one-year salary. We stretched that out to 29 months by, having, by making significant lifestyle changes. These changes included having our three kids get married within a time frame of 16 months. They were all still in university and nobody had a job, but hey, they were no longer our financial responsibility. But this support ran out eight years ago. I needed to go back to work to earn our living. I thought I'd done my part for these kids and now needed to look after us again. I, however, had no peace. I'm sure we can all relate when we know what we have to do, but we do not want to do it. Continuing to be an advocate for kids I do not even know without any kind of income seems crazy and maybe even a bit irresponsible. The Bible teaches us to look after the orphan or abandoned, but what, at what personal cost? Sponsoring a child sounds reasonable, but this? But I was constantly reminded of the story of the five loaves and the two fish. I felt as if God wanted me to live out that story. Our RSPs were my five loaves of bread. My legs, my ability to ride my bike, were my two fish. God wanted me to continue to be an ambassador for children that have been abandoned by everyone except God, living off of our RSPs at age 50. We met with a financial advisor who promptly told us that he could not devise a plan that would work for us. It is one thing to want to trust God to provide our daily needs. It, however, is another thing to act on it. The most difficult thing was to move forward in faith without seeing what God's plan looked like. When we finally handed it over to God, we had peace. Since that time, a few friends have asked us how we paid our bills and decided to help us personally. This simply extends the time that we can do this work. Now, we continue to trust God to provide. This is not to say it is easy. 
we are very human. And we have our moments when we say, what are we doing? But we have marveled on numerous occasions how God affirms our decision. Now, God has multiplied those five loaves of bread and the two fish. Since 2005, God has blessed our efforts, and we have been able to raise over $4.5 million to help Charles and Esther Mooley feed thousands of kids. Now, there are many more experiences of ours and the Mooleys in the books that are available in the back for $15 each. They include the three Mooley books written by Paul Bogum. Also just released is My Journey of Faith, written by Charles Mooley himself. And then there is When Quitting is Not an Option. This is my story, written by our son Paul, who is a youth pastor and a writer. What an honor and a blessing it is to have your son write your story, especially when you're still alive. So if you're interested in any of these books, they're in the back of the table there. In conclusion, I want to share the three lessons that I've learned during my my cross-Canada riots. Number one, I've learned that when I reach the end of my ability, God is still in control. However, I still have to continue to do my best. Secondly, I've learned that that making a difference does not come easy. And there is a personal cost to it. Third, I've learned that the personal sacrifices I am making are insignificant compared to the personal rewards I'm experiencing. So I want to leave you with this challenge. When you see a picture of a destitute child, allow God to show you the child instead of the picture. And then watch God perform miracles like charity and Lillian, but it begins in your own heart. And one final thought. Never underestimate what you can do, and especially not what God can do through you. Twenty-three years ago, something as ordinary as an unsuccessful 40-kilometer bike ride, God used as a cornerstone to build a platform to help transform hundreds of orphaned or abandoned children's lives. So my question is, what cornerstone are you offering to God? Thank you for allowing me to share my story.